Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Last Wednesday, the former Bosnian Serb general Ratko Mladic was sentenced to life in prison for genocide and crimes against humanity during the Bosnian War of the mid-1990s. The verdict was not a surprise, but the reaction to it exposed the continuing deep divisions between the peoples of the Balkan states. What are the prospects for reconciliation? And where can the victims of the Balkan Wars and their families go to seek justice in the future, given that the International Criminal Court Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which delivered the Mladic verdict, is about to wind down? Dan McLaughlin will join me in a moment to explore these issues. I'll also be talking to Suzanne Lynch about a big week ahead for US President Donald Trump. But Dan McLaughlin is on the line now from Budapest. Dan, you've been in the Bosnian capital Sarajevo and the Serbian capital Belgrade over the past couple of weeks, talking to people about the Mladic trial and the verdict. There are stark differences in how people responded to this verdict, isn't that right? Absolutely. Um, And there are differences, again, which aren't a huge surprise, given that they've persisted through the, uh, what, 22 years since the end of the Bosnian War. in Serbia, there is uh, well. If we look at the the reactions of the leaders, for example, in Serbia to the to the Mladic verdict, both the president Alexander Vucic and the prime minister Anna Brnovic um, didn't really want to look at the past. They said it's time to move on. It's time to look to the future, um, and this really reflects a, an attitude throughout Serbian politics and society that they they don't really want to deal with. Um, the events of the 90s and the crimes of the 90s. And that, that's um, an interesting point, isn't it, Dan? Sorry to cut in, but you, you, you pointed uh, this out in a piece you wrote the other day, that it's not just people, if you like, on the margins in, Ser- in Serbian society among Bosnian Serbs or in Serbia itself. It's not just people with kind of extreme views. It's a mainstream view, isn't it, that, that Serbia has been shouldered with kind of unfair blame and unfair uh, um, weight of responsibility for, for what happened in, in the Bosnian War. Uh, it is a mainstream view. I'm talking to um, to people who study, uh, in, who who do research into these things in Belgrade, say that that their research and surveys show consistently that most people in Serbia don't want to don't want to hold war crimes trials. They don't see any point in it. They believe the the um, United Nations Court in The Hague, which operated for about 23 years. Um, with the Mladic verdict, as you said, being its last case, they see the court in The Hague as being um, extremely biased against Serbs. They don't feel that Serbs in Serbia um, have got any justice from from that court. Uh, so it is a mainstream view. I mean, we had comments from, uh, as well as the, the Serbian leaders that I mentioned uh, to you there, saying, let's look forward instead of back. We had the, the Serb patriarch, the patriarch of the, the Serb Orthodox Church, calling the, the, the work of the UN court the, the work of the devil. We had the leader of the Bosnian Serbs, uh, Milorad Dodik, uh, calling Mladic the, the, in the immediate aftermath of the verdict a patriot and a hero. And these kind of, um, these kind of comments, while they're abhorrent to, to some Serbs and, and, and other people did come out, small groups came out and did protest holding banners in Belgrade, for example, saying that um, uh, war criminals were not their heroes. Um, it is, it is a, a, an opinion that you hear 
um, widely in, in Serbian society, in Serbian politics and in Serbian media. And while it seems shocking to, to people outside the country, it's really, it's really nothing new and, and nothing shocking for, Ser- for, for most Serbs, at least. And yet, you know, for international observers, most people outside, I suppose, the non-partisan observers, the evidence against Miladic seemed to be very, very clear and overwhelming. We should probably remind ourselves of the, the crimes he was convicted of. Well, the, the the main indictments against Ladic were um, for the the, Srebra, the Srebrenica genocide. Uh, that was in July 1995 when Bosnian Serb forces took over Srebrenica, which was supposedly a United Nations safe haven at the time. Um, Dutch troops were driven out and uh, and overrun there basically, and um, and Bosnian Serb soldiers under Ladic's command killed 8,000 unarmed. Uh, Muslim men and boys over the following over the course of about five days in the middle of July 1995. The other key indictment against Mladic was for the siege of Sarajevo, siege of Sarajevo, the Bosnian capital, um, which was mostly um, Bosnian Muslim inhabited during the war and still is. Um, but that lasted for 44 months from 1992 to early 1996, and 11,000 people were killed during that siege. So, as you say, the evidence is is overwhelming against Mladic. Um, it's forensic evidence, it's eyewitness evidence built up over the over the course of the of the case after Mladic was finally arrested in 2011, after being on the run for what um, 16 years, I think that is after the after the end of the war, um, protected by. Uh, elements in the Serbian security forces and the Serbian army. For a while, he was living openly in Belgrade under the protection of the then leader Slobodan Milosevic. Um, so all these kind of questions remain unanswered. Who protected him? Who made sure that he wasn't caught? Um, and there are hundreds of cases still pending in front of um, uh, war crimes prosecutors in Serbia. And, and it remains to be seen now that the United Nations Court is closing in The Hague, what becomes of all those all those cases which um, which still remain unresolved. And, and that's something I'm going to ask you about in a moment, Dan. But just on Miladic, what is the um, then the particular sort of grievance of of Serbs who do who don't really accept you know this verdict, or, or is it that they think others who committed similar crimes um, um, have not been similarly punished, or do they dispute the evidence in the first place? Um, both, really. Um, a lot of people in Serbia say that uh, they say that the, the crimes that were committed against Serbs in Bosnia, particularly in the region around Srebrenica, have not been partic- uh, properly investigated or prosecuted. Um, people that I spoke to in Belgrade, uh, Serbian nationalists, but as I say, their views are are easily heard in the mainstream media and from mainstream politicians, uh, told me that they believed something like three and a half thousand Serbs were killed by Bosnian Muslim militia in the run-up to Srebrenica. And that what Mladic's troops were doing was essentially protecting Serbs from further atrocities. And that, okay, maybe there were individuals or small groups of Serbs who committed war crimes at that time, but that, but that no proof had been delivered that Mladic ordered those crimes to be committed. Um, on the other hand, they also say that um, when they, they point out that the majority of people indicted and convicted by the UN court at The Hague were Serbs, and that's true. I mean, if you look at the number of uh, victims, the, they were the, the vast majority of victims were Bosnian Muslims who were killed by, Bos- by, by Serbs and Bosnian Serbs. But um, 
people who defend the likes of Mladic say, why weren't people, for example, like Nasser Oric, who was the defender of Srebrenica on the Bosnian Muslim side, he was acquitted. They say that um, the Croatian generals, um, uh, Markac and Gotovina, who were in charge of the operation which retook lots of uh, Croatian territory from, from, from Serb forces and drove out uh, large numbers of, of Serb civilians from parts of Croatia um, towards the end of the war in 95. Why weren't they convicted? They say in Kosovo, people like Ramos Haradinaj um, and other um, Kosovo rebels at the time during the 1998-9 Kosovo conflict who have gone on to become powerful politicians and political leaders in Kosovo, why haven't they been convicted? So um, Serbs have lots of grievances which, which remain open and this all contributes to this widespread denial of the crimes committed by people like uh, Radko Mladic and his his political leader in in Bosnia uh, in, in um, the Bosnian Serb Republic during the war, Rad, um, Radovan Karadzic. And I mean, do you think there's any legitimacy to some of these claims? Um, I mean, just for example, you mentioned there they claim that three and a half thousand Serbs were were murdered in advance by, by Bosnian Muslims in advance of the, the siege of um, the, the atrocity at Srebrenica. But was, is there any evidence for that? Well, I mean, even people who, uh, not not for the, for those particular numbers, um, and Nasser Oric, as I say, the defender of Srebrenica, was cleared by the court. Some people who have observed the court and do not uh, subscribe to uh, the conspiracy theories surrounding the sort of defense or people who, who would like to... Uh, to clear, to, to defend Mladic and, and Karadzic and people like that of their crimes. They, they do say that there have been problems with the court and they do question certain uh, judgments, uh, not only against certain Croats or Bosnian Muslims or, or uh, Kosovar rebel leaders, but also against some Serbs who were acquitted. They say that there were problems with this court. I mean, it, it ran for 23 years. They say um, Certainly, that lots of the cases should never have taken that long. Lots of procedural problems, problems with intimidation of witnesses, problems with threats against witnesses. So it's certainly not uh, a court that has a completely uh, problem-free or trouble-free record. But it did create an enormous body of evidence, um, uh, forensic evidence, eyewitness evidence, which means that the wars in, in former Yugoslavia during the 90s are probably better documented than any war, uh, uh, better document, documented than any war since, since the Second World War and the Nuremberg trials. And now, as you said, the, the Milavis case is the last um, case that this tribunal is hearing. So um, uh, why is it finishing its work at this particular point when, you know, not all of these is issues have yet been resolved, clearly? Well, largely because it's been going, it's it's been running for so long, 23 years, people think that this is, justice has, has taken far too long to deliver um, for former Yugoslavia. And it's a very expensive court. Um, the international consensus which helped to found it in the 1990s, when Russia particularly was relatively weak, is no longer there. Um, in general, there is a, a, a waning of, of, of international willingness and, uh, uh, and, and, and yeah, willingness to cooperate on these kind of international um, judicial projects. The International Criminal Court continues, but, for example, the United States and, and Israel and Russia are not party to, the, to that court. So um, there's a general weariness around the whole um, uh, push for international criminal justice. And also people just feel like we're, we're, we're so far after the events of, uh, 
of the 1990s and the Yugoslav wars that uh, it's time to move on. Also, of course, the European Union is pushing the countries in the Balkan state uh, in the Balkans who are uh, pushing for uh, pushing to become European Union members in years to come to take on these cases themselves. Um, to strengthen their own judicial practices and systems and to get over the denial that has dogged them for so long. But unfortunately, uh, as these cases are um, are moving back to the domestic um, uh, judicial systems of the Balkan states, we're seeing that denial continues and there's a, there's a continued unwillingness to, to deal with these cases and to tackle the crimes of the 90s. So um, uh, prospects are pretty bleak, actually, for... Uh, these war crimes cases being dealt with by the domestic courts in the Balkans in in the years to come. And so, for example, Dan, you wrote a very interesting piece the other day about the International Commission on on Missing Persons and the work they're doing. And it's continuing its work, very painstaking work in finding and identifying remains of the victims of the Bosnian War. Um, And it it presented expert evidence in more than 30 cases before the tribunal at The Hague that's now winding down. So where would would this commission now go with its its work in the future, with its evidence? It's to national courts now in the the national jurisdictions. Is that right? That's right. But I mean, the the International Commission on Missing Persons is a a very interesting organization. It was created in 96, um, based in Sarajevo. And its main focus was finding and identifying um, all the victims of the more than 100,000 victims of something like 140,000 victims of the Balkan Wars. Um, But uh, as time has moved on, and about 70% of those victims have been found in mass graves and identified by this point, um, the ICMP itself, this commission, is is moving on. It's now looking to work in Iraq. It's looking to work in Syria when possible. Um, It's also dealing with helping countries identify victims not only of conflicts but natural disasters, things like the tsunami in in, um, Southeast Asia, um, uh, other things like... uh, man-made disasters as well, catastrophes like the MH17 um, plane that was shot down over eastern Ukraine back in 2014. It's helped, it helped identify victims of, um, of, that, of that disaster too. So that particular organization is moving on and doing lots of different things with the, with the skills and technical expertise that it developed in the Balkans in the years after the war. The ICMP is moving its base from Sarajevo. It's moved its base, in fact, from Sarajevo to The Hague. And it's moving its DNA DNA lab from um, Sarajevo to The Hague. But it is continuing its work uh, in the Balkans, continuing to try to identify missing persons. Um, in terms of the evidence that it's still turning up, which was crucial to some of the to the work of the, the court in The Hague and to the con- some of the convictions there, um, that will now pass on to... Um, to the local courts around the Balkans, but whether, as I say, whether there will be the, the the willingness, the political willingness, and the willingness in society to really deal with those cases now, um, you know, more than 20 years after the uh, after the wars ended in in Bosnia and other countries, um, remains to be seen. And then we focus there on the Bosnian War, but. Of course, that war ended in 1995, and then a few years later, we had the conflict in in Kosovo, um, in fighting between rebels and government troops, killed some 13,000 people, about a million people were displaced, and it finally finished when when the NATO bombing drove Serb forces um, out of Kosovo, which was then a Serb region. There is a new EU court about to begin work in relation to that conflict, isn't that right? Could you tell us something about that? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's very interesting. As the UN court uh, winds down in The Hague, a new EU-backed court is opening up specifically to deal with, uh, with uh, alleged war crimes from the Kosovo conflict. Um, this court is actually called, it's called the Specialist Chambers. That's its official name um, because it actually works as, officially as a sort of um, adjunct to the to the the, the um, uh, Kosovo legal system, but it's going to be located in the Hague to try and ensure um, safe and secure conditions for people testifying in in war crimes cases relating to the 1998-9 um, conflict in Kosovo. Now it's taken a long time to establish this. It was finally agreed, um, and and the, the relevant legislation was passed a couple of years ago by the Parliament in Kosovo. Um, and the court is up and running. Um, as you mentioned, we, we ran a story on this the other day. Uh, we spoke to the, to the Irish lawyer who is the registrar for the new court, uh, Fidel Madonlan. And she was in Kosovo visiting with the court's president um, at the end of last week. And the court is up and running. It's, well, it's, it's ready to, to start its work, basically. It's now waiting for the first indictment to be delivered by the specialist prosecutor. That's a U.S. prosecutor. Um, and um, we wait to see when that will be. Um, Dr. Donnellan couldn't give us any any clues on that because the the court works independently from the prosecutor, obviously. Um, so it's waiting to start its work, um, and it will come under great scrutiny, both in Kosovo and in Serbia. In Kosovo, because a lot of the political leaders in the country, including President Hashim Thaci, including Prime Minister Ramos Haradinaj, were form were were rebels rebel leaders during the 1980, uh, 1998-9 conflict. Um, and there are suspicions and rumors that senior figures from that time, senior rebels, now potentially senior politicians, uh, no names have been mentioned, but um, they, they could be indicted by this new court. Um, in Kosovo, that would be extremely controversial because the independence-seeking rebels of the time are seen as heroes in Kosovo. And in Serbia, there will be great uh, pressure and scrutiny on the court to make sure that the people that uh, lots of Serbs consider to be war criminals, like those some of those uh, senior former rebels, current senior politicians that I mentioned, uh, are brought to justice. So um, the, uh, it will be impossible to please both sides. Um, some Serbs will be will be angry, and and Kosovars will be angry. Whatever the uh, whatever the work and the and uh, whatever the work of the court and the verdicts that it comes to. Um, but as I say, we're waiting to see the first indictment, and we're waiting to see that process really get up and running in the in the months ahead. And then, <clears throat> that brings me to a final point. I mean, I just would like to get an assessment of you from you um, of kind of the state of relations, you know, within the, the Balkan states, with, uh, within Bosnia, for example, the Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Muslims, and, and Croats. Um, the state of relationships there. You have the Serbia and Kosovo kind of ongoing simmering conflict. Serbia one still doesn't recognise Kosovo and independence. So we're kind of still living with the legacy, I think, of these conflicts from the 1990s. How long do you think that's going to continue or when do you see a sort of genuine oh, well, reconciliation it's, happening? It's very hard to see an end to it. And, and there could be a kind of reconciliation on a political level without there really be a, being a reconciliation on a, on, um, on a social level. Um, because the EU is, pu is, is pushing hard and saying that, telling all the countries in the region that you can't join the EU without this kind of reconciliation. Um, so it's pushing 
um, and it has pushed uh, Serb leaders and Kosovar leaders to meet and to try and resolve practical problems in their relations on the ground, even though, as you mentioned, Serbia refuses to recognize or to even contemplate recognizing the independence of Kosovo. Um, in Bosnia, Bosnia is still deeply dysfunctional. It's still run along the lines uh, drawn up by the Dayton Peace Agreement in 1995. And that makes for an incredibly cumbersome um, administrative system. And it's also allowed the, the Serb-run republic in Bosnia to basically do its own thing. Um, Republika Srpska, run by the Serb nationalist Milorad Dodik, who I mentioned earlier, uh, staunchly refuses to give any of its powers up to um, the, the federal capital in Sarajevo um, to try and to, to enable uh, Bosnia to, to become a more integrated and better functioning state. The EU is pushing that. It says that, um, that Bosnia must integrate more deeply and, and, and become a more cohesive country before it can enter the European Union. But the, but the leaders of Republika Srpska at the moment absolutely refuse to do that. And they say that they would prefer to hold a referendum on leaving Bosnia rather than giving up powers to Sarajevo. So um, we're still dealing with the legacy of the 90s. Um, the, the, we, we can't say when we will get over those things. It may, may take another generation to do that. The EU is the main driver of, um, of, of efforts to make the, the, the countries in the region more cohesive and to, and to push forward this process of reconciliation. But as we see from the Mladic, Mladic verdict, um, we're still a long way from really looking from, from having all these countries really look clearly at what went on in the 90s and, and for taking responsibilities for the various c crimes committed in their names more than 20 years ago. Dan, thanks for that. Now to the US, where it's setting up to be a crucial week for President Donald Trump. Today, Tuesday, he meets Senate Republicans to lobby for a tax reform plan that could decide whether he ends his first year with a major legislative achievement or not. Suzanne Lynch joins me now from Washington. Suzanne, tell us about this tax reform plan. Why is it so important to Donald Trump and, and what's the current state of play with it? Yes, well, this tax reform plan has been trundling its way through this system here in Washington for some months. And there really is a political will on the Republican side to try and secure some kind of uh, tax reform package by the end of the year, because really the party is in need of some kind of legislative win, particularly following the failure of uh, the repeal and replace of Obamacare during the summer. Um, now, so where things stand, uh, Congress was not in session last week for Thanksgiving, uh, and uh, it's very much much kind of back to school feel here this week. Uh, just before the Thanksgiving break on November the 16th, the House of Representatives passed their version of the bill. Uh, this week now focuses on the Senate. That's going to be a lot more tricky. Um, they are looking to get agreement on their own version. Once they do, well, then the two sides need to kind of negotiate and agree a kind of... Um, an agreement and iron out the differences between the two versions. And at that point, when they have a, a, a whole bill, if you like, then it will, they hope, go to the president uh, for signing in the White House. And the Republicans, we should point out, they've got a very narrow majority in the Senate, don't they? So they can't really afford to have uh, um, more than a couple of dissenters on this one. They need everybody on board. Exactly. So um, they have 52 seats out of 100. So they can only lose two seats and presuming Democrats vote against it. And then Mike Pence, the vice president, 
would cast a tie uh, deciding vote uh, legally he, he can do that so they can only afford to lose two people at the moment there are around half a dozen senators who have issues with the current proposal uh, under discussion now the main concerns are there's a couple of issues that they're looking to resolve um, one is that some senators are concerned that it's going to raise uh, raise the deficit. They're worried about the implications uh, for this huge uh, tax cut on uh, the the U.S. deficit on on the debt situation as well. Uh, so they want assurances that this will be offset in other ways. And the other issue that's emerging as a kind of cause of concern is that a certain senators, including um, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and Steve Daines of Montana, that they're very concerned because they feel it doesn't uh, help small business owners enough. Yes, there's a lot there on the corporate tax side. That's more, you know, uh, that's more focused on big multinationals. They want something more for small businesses in their constituencies that they feel are being adversely affected by this plan. So there are some of the issues that have been ironed uh, that have to be ironed out in the next couple of days. Now, as you mentioned, Donald Trump is due to have lunch with Republicans on the Hill and Capitol Hill today. And then there is a key vote in the Senate Budget Committee and um, one of these key committees in the Senate on the issue this afternoon. Now, that's going to be closely watched because Republicans have only uh, have only one controlling seat on that. Um, so they can only afford, if you like, to lose one vote on that. So. That could spell danger if they get into trouble at that committee stage. But if they get through that, well, then we could see Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, pushing for a vote and putting that on the schedule uh, before the end of the week. And in a nutshell, Suzanne, what are the tax cuts? What kind of tax cuts are involved? What kind of are the headline measures involved? Yeah, one of the main uh, measures, and if we take the kind of main points from both versions, if you like, um, one of the main changes and that Ireland will be watching in particular are changes to the corporate tax rate, reducing the current corporate tax rate from 35% to 20%. That is obviously going to have a huge impact then on the on the tax revenues coming in and uh, on that. That's number one. And then on the individual tax side, the thing that affects every citizen here in America, and they are trying to simplify the US tax code um, and to reduce the number of tax brackets. There's around seven, six and seven now to reduce it down maybe to four, to five, to three maybe and make that more simple. Also cuts in the individual tax rates. Um, and then uh, also there are uh, controversial changes to the reductions people can make uh, that they offset payments on local and state taxes against their tax bill. That's affecting a lot of people here. It, it's going to affect uh, the bottom line for people and, and their pockets. So that's a very kind of tense issue uh, for people. So even though, you know, internationally people are focusing on really what's going to be a huge reform of the corporate tax system, essentially, like every political system, all politics is local. It's going to be the individual tax cuts uh, that are, are going to affect people most here and that a lot of congressmen and senators uh, are under pressure from from their constituents. And just on that point, Suzanne, I mean, tax cuts, are this is traditional Republican territory, but there's, there's one thing I find puzzling about it uh, is that, and about Trump's determination to get these measures through, is that all of the independent assessments seem to suggest that this is going to involve a, a major sort of transfer of wealth from the the less well off to the to the to the rich in America. There was, for example, the Congressional Budget Office said this week that the, the Senate bill, as it stands, would hurt workers earning less than thirty thousand dollars while delivering benefits to the highest earners. Is there a danger here? Well, the danger from Trump's point of view that um, that his own sort of support base will kind of suffer through these measures. 
Yes, I mean, that's very true. I mean, here we have Trump kind of trying to appeal to both traditional Republican supporters, you know, the pro-business, low-tax kind of supporters, wealthy Americans, essentially, and then trying to keep his base happy too. Now, it does seem to be um, that in the middle, in the lower middle income, if you like, that there'll be certain uh, certain categories of people who won't be that affected. But you're right in that it's going to be the very higher level and the very lower level that may be. Um, Now, Republicans are disputing that. Uh, It's quite a complex plan. Uh, but things like, for example, a change that the Senate plan is trying to int- introduce that would remove the individual mandate on Obamacare, that again could have uh, adverse reactions on some people, particularly those who can't afford health care. So you're absolutely right on that. I mean, the other issue here is that it seems uh, entirely ironic, too, that Republicans have been the party that have been consistently critical of Democratic plans to spend too much, uh, and they're worried all the time about that impact on the deficit, these budget hawks, as they're called, within the Republican Party. But now that they're in power themselves, there seems to be less and less talk about that. And the argument seems to be from the White House and Republican leadership, listen, once we have tax cuts, these the, these will spur economic growth and GDP will rise as a result. That's their kernel of their argument, basically, um, saying that the tax cuts will spur growth. So any costs will be offset by the amount of economic growth that's going to be out there in the country. More businesses are going to be hiring more people. That will be good for everybody. That's the kernel of their argument. But as you say, a lot of independent analysts are questioning this and and really are arguing that Republican uh, argument is being way too optimistic about the impact of tax cuts on the economy. Right. So it's jobs, 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 as Trump keeps saying. Yeah. Just, um, Suzanne, we had a mini break from US politics last week as people there celebrated the Thanksgiving um, holiday. So now that Washington is back, if you like, in, in full tilt, what else should we be looking out for this week? Um, well, I think there are a couple of issues. Uh, the sexual harassment scandal that has um, dominated news coverage here for the last month uh, has not gone away. And in the few days before the Thanksgiving break, uh, there were a number of reports uh, about sexual harassment on, in Congress. So obviously there's been the controversy about Judge Moore down in Alabama, who's running for this special election on December the 12th. But there has also been some revelations, particularly about Democratic politicians. We have um, Senator Al Franken, who has been accused of inappropriate behaviour towards um, a radio host back in 2006, 2007. And there's also been... Um, potentially more seriously, John Conyers is the longest serving member of the House of Representatives. He's a Democrat from Michigan. He has been accused of sexual harassment by a staffer in Congress. So there's been a real now uh, focus on allegations of sexual harassment within Congress. Um, One of the problems now that's been highlighted is that a number of congressmen, as has now been revealed, have made settlements with staff members about sexual harassment. But under a 1995 law, Designed to protect the victims, uh, in part, these are um, these are secretive. You know, you can't find out the terms of the settlement, who made the the uh, the accusation, and the congressmen involved. So there is now debate now going on about should that be changed. So ironically, even though the Republican Party, particularly. Roy Moore came under a lot of pressure. This issue about sexual harassment is now engulfing the Democratic Party. And, and in a sense, is even asking long-term supporters, for example, the Clintons, a lot of very um, senior women um, commentators, female commentators and politicians have now actually come out and said, you know what, if the, if the Clinton, um, Monica Lewinsky scandal happened now, we don't think we would have backed Bill Clinton the way we did. So it's a quite an interesting moment, I think, uh, about this uh, in terms of the Democratic's kind of um, 
and the liberal media that su- tends to support Democratic candidates about their uh, role in maybe, and, and during the Clinton years in particular, turning a blind eye to uh, activity that if uh, President Trump was to engage in, for example, they would have a very different attitude. So I think that has not gone away, uh, that issue of sexual harassment, particularly on Capitol Hill. Sure. And what finally, what about the Mueller investigation, the, the special counsel investigation into Russian interference in the election? Uh, there's a sense that things are gathering pace there as well. Yes. Um, obviously, on the 31st of October, there were those dramatic arrests of Paul Manafort, uh, his aide, and then the news that George Papalopoulos had uh, was cooperation with the FBI. In the last few days, uh, there have been reports that Mike Flynn's legal team have told the, the Trump legal team, essentially, that they're no longer going to be able to uh, co-op to discuss with them details of the inquiry. So the implication being that perhaps perhaps Mike Flynn is now willing to cooperate with the Mueller investigation. There's a sense that something could be very imminent on that. Uh, Mike Flynn uh, was the top national security advisor to Trump for those three weeks at the beginning of the presidency, but also during the transition, had access to the the country's top secrets, essentially. Um, And there are now concerns that his dealings with foreign entities, particularly Turkey, uh, but also potentially Russia, uh, may have caught the eye of Mueller. So I think there's a sense that that has not gone away. And uh, one of the most significant things about the Mueller investigation was the fact that those arrests on the 31st of October really came out of the blue, really surprised the political establishment here. Um, Mueller, Robert Mueller, had succeeded in, in preventing leaks on that, really. So there's a sense that this could happen at any moment. And I think uh, Trump, the Trump team are aware of that, and hence we've had a, quite a concerted effort in in the last few weeks to try again and turn the focus onto the Clinton campaign and 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 Hillary Clinton's role in a in a deal that that saw uranium one being sold a company being sold to Russia to a Russian company during her her tenure as secretary of state so um I think it's it's a case as usual of, of Trump trying to deflect attention from his own role in this potentially in this investigation and onto the Democrats okay Suzanne we'll leave it there for now thank you That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.